Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, U.S. Imperialism. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Motivations. In the late 19th century, powerful countries around the world were advocating for imperialism, which was the policy of establishing and maintaining an empire over a large geographic area. This was based in large part on the idea of social Darwinism, the belief that if a nation proved its fitness, it should rule inferior peoples. As I mentioned in a previous lecture, by the 20th century, Europeans had carved up most of Africa and were competing for influence in China, Many Americans want to get involved too, but why? Well, the first was the older concept of manifest destiny, the idea that America should rule over all of the continental United States. But with the frontier closed, many Americans believed that it was necessary to channel our energies overseas. As I alluded to earlier, another concept that played a role was social Darwinism, and Theodore Roosevelt himself believed that English-speaking Anglo-Saxons were a, quote, vigorous race with a special knack for government. Another motivation is the desire to spread Christianity and American democracy. In fact, President William McKinley said he was interested in Christianizing the Philippines, although he failed to realize that the Catholic Church had been there since the 1500s. A more based motivation was the desire to make the United States richer. Technological improvements meant that Americans were producing way more goods than they needed, and now they desired new markets in which to sell those goods. A fifth reason was the desire to become a world power, including building a stronger navy. Behind this idea was an 1890 publication called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, written by Captain Alfred T. Mahan, in which he argued that strong nations must have strong navies. The Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, was so convinced by this argument that he ordered a copy of this book for every single ship in the U.S. fleet. As a result of this idea, the United States embarked on building a new steam-powered navy nicknamed the Great White Fleet. Steel was purchased from Andrew Carnegie's company, who according to a later investigation found that he was overcharging the United States government and selling cheaper steel to the Russian Navy. And that just shows that American patriotism only goes as far as the bottom line will allow. Please advance to the next slide entitled early imperialism. American diplomacy for much of the 1800s centered around the Monroe Doctrine, which argued that the Western Hemisphere and the North American continent in particular should be dominated by the United States. It said, quote, the American continents, by the free and independent condition which they have assumed and maintain, are henceforth not to be considered as the subjects for further colonization by any European power. In the wars of any European nate powers, in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part, nor does it comport with our policy to do so. It is only when our rights are invaded 
or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparations for our defense. End quote. As a result of this policy, the United States attempted to ensure that all territory in and around the continental United States was in the possession of the American government. This is evidenced in 1867, when the United States government bought Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. Most people at the time were very critical of the purchase, and since the Secretary of State at the time was called William H. Seward, people naturally called Alaska Seward's Icebox. However, no one could have known that Alaska turned out to be very rich in natural resources, though it did not become a state until 1959. The next effort at extracontinental expansion came in 1898, when Hawaii was made an official U.S. territory. It had been under the control of American sugar and pineapple farmers who wanted to overthrow Queen Lukukulane. After her overthrow and it was made a territory, the island became famous for its plantations, and it did not become a state until 1959. However, the biggest imperialist venture in the 19th century was Cuba. Cuba had been controlled by Spain since the Spanish conquest, and they also controlled the islands of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines in the Pacific. Cuba, as you know, lies only 90 miles south of Florida, so obviously many Americans had been interested in acquiring it. And the island was famous for its sugar plantations, which many Americans wanted to acquire. Over the years, Americans had tried several times to buy the island, like in 1854 when they were rejected. And I alluded this to the Road to Disunion lecture at the beginning of the course. Well, from 1869 to 1871, the United States also tried to buy the Dominican Republic as a safety valve, if you will, for Southern African Americans, as well as a naval base. However, this idea ultimately failed, as many Americans worried about racial issues and annexation of the island. By the 1890s, the United States had $50 million invested in Cuba, and did over $100 million in annual trade with the island, so clearly there was an economic motivation in the island's future. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Push for War. In 1895, native Cubans led by José Martí started a revolution to expel the hated Spanish, and Spain sent the general Valeriano Weyler and troops there to restore order. Whaler herded thousands of Cubans into what they called reconcentration camps in order to try to keep the Cuban people from helping the rebels. And by the way, whenever you stick civilians in cages, bad things will happen. From 1896 to 1898, at least 100,000 Cuban civilians died in areas under Spanish control, and many Americans were generally appalled. American journalists traveled to Cuba and reported on the war and the conditions in the camps, and these journalists were part of what was called the Yellow Press, meaning that they often exaggerated what they saw. Now don't get me wrong, what they saw was horrible, but they also exaggerated it 
with sensationalist writing designed to sell newspapers and stir up sympathy for the Cuban people. An example of this is Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, New York World, in an article in May 1896, which said, quote, No man's life, no man's property is safe in Cuba. American citizens are imprisoned or slain without cause. Wounded soldiers can be found begging in the streets of Havana. The horrors of a barbarous struggle for the extermination of the native population are witnessed in all parts of the country. Blood on the roadsides, blood in the fields, blood on the doorsteps, blood, blood, blood. Is there no nation wise enough, brave enough to aid this blood-smitten land? End quote. So clearly, he's trying to tug at American heartstrings. Well, eventually, the Americans called the Spanish general Butcher Whaler, and many Americans began calling for a war with Spain. Now, obviously, many wanted this for humanitarian reasons, in order to help suffering Cubans. And also, some saw it as an opportunity to expand U.S. power abroad. So please turn to the next slide, entitled, Casus Belli. Now initially, President William McKinley did not want war. McKinley had been a soldier during the Battle of Antietam during the Civil War, and he knew what bloodshed was like. But other government officials did want war, especially McKinley's Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt. McKinley tried diplomacy, and for a while it worked. Spain ended up recalling Whaler out of Cuba and ended the program of reconcentration camps. But in early 1898, the USS Maine, an American battleship, had been sent to Cuba in order to protect American lives and property after rioting had broken out. It did look like war could be avoided until two things happened. First, the Spanish ambassador to the United States wrote a letter saying McKinley was, quote, weak and a bitter for the admiration of the crowd, end quote. And this letter ended up getting intercepted and published in an American newspaper, leading to a general outcry and McKinley's own embarrassment. Things were made even worse six days later, when the USS Maine mysteriously exploded off the coast of Cuba, killing over 260 sailors. Now, we now know that this explosion was caused by an accidental fire in the boat's boiler room, but the Yellow Press published articles saying that it was Spanish sabotage or worse. Roosevelt himself called this, quote, an act of dirty treachery on the part of the Spaniards, end quote. Many decided then and there that the United States needed to go to war. But before declaring war, Congress passed the Teller Amendment, which stated that the Cuban government would be left for Cubans to control. So, theoretically, they are saying they do not want any territorial acquisitions. Thus, on April 1898, due in large part to popular demand, the United States declared war on Spain. Please advance to the next slide, entitled... The Spanish-American War. While Cuba may have been the center of controversy, the first battle actually took place in the Philippines, 
where a United States naval fleet in the Pacific, under the command of Commodore George Dewey, destroyed a large Spanish fleet anchored in Manila Bay. Dozens of Spanish ships were lost, but only one single American sailor was killed in the battle, illustrating superior American technology and tactics. With the Spanish Navy destroyed, the United States was able to land troops in the Philippines. And like the Cubans, the Filipinos had been fighting their own war for independence for months. Within a few months of American troops landing in the Philippines, Spanish troops surrendered to the United States authorities, and Dewey became a national hero. Meanwhile, in the Caribbean, the United States Navy set up a blockade of the island of Cuba. On land, American army forces were mostly very poorly trained volunteers, who wore wool and flannel uniforms, which is extremely uncomfortable in the tropical heat, and they also used out-of-date Civil War-era rifles. These raw volunteers were augmented by professional soldiers, the Buffalo Soldiers. These were black regiments who had served in the American West, and they hoped that by fighting abroad, whites back home would accept them when they returned. With Americans gearing up for war, Theodore Roosevelt got antsy, and he resigned his post as Undersecretary of the Navy to volunteer in the first volunteer cavalry nicknamed the Rough Riders, and he was placed second in command. Theodore Roosevelt and his Rough Riders gained fame at the Battle of San Juan Hill, where he and his men charged up under a ferocious Spanish machine gun and rifle fire. But what is often forgot about the battle is that the Buffalo soldiers also took part and were largely responsible for the American victory there. With Spanish forces effectively defeated, the war came to an end. So please advance to the next slide, the results of the war. The Spanish-American War is one of the shortest conflicts in American history, as it only lasted 114 days. It officially ended in August 1898 with the signing of an armistice, or ceasefire. Over the course of the conflict, 379 Americans were killed in combat or died from wounds, though a larger amount, 5,600 soldiers, had died of tropical diseases, including malaria, dysentery, and typhoid. Now, there are no reliable figures for Cuban casualties, though they probably are in the tens of thousands, if not higher. And Spanish casualties are estimated at around 60,000 killed. By December 1898, Spain and the United States formally concluded the Treaty of Paris, where Cuba officially got its independence, confirming congressional policy with the Teller Amendment. In 1901, Congress passed the Platt Amendment, which said the United States could intervene in Cuba in order to protect lives and property or the interest of preserving Cuban independence. It also said that Cuba had to get the permission of the United States before it could sign any treaties with other countries, and it also had to accept U.S. bases at Guantanamo Bay. So the Platt Amendment effectively goes back on the Teller Amendment, as now the Cubans are subject to American whims 
in their internal affairs. The second part of the treaty stated that the United States would receive Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, but the people of these regions were not made U.S. citizens, which illustrates the racial thinking of the era. The Philippines was actually a very controversial acquisition. Controlling a few Caribbean islands was one thing, but controlling a large, densely populated territory thousands of miles away in the Pacific was a whole nother story. President William McKinley himself was not sure what to do. He certainly did not want other nations like China or Great Britain to claim it, but he believed that the Filipinos were unfit for self-government. So in the end, the Philippines became a United States protectorate. And Governor William H. Taft was sent there to help transition the people to self-government. Taft said of the Filipinos, quote, they could not grasp what Anglo-Saxon liberty is yet. So again, this illustrates the concept of social Darwinism and white supremacist ideologies. Because in reality, how is being a United States protectorate any different than being controlled by Spain? Well, the Filipinos couldn't see any difference, so please turn to the next slide, the Philippine Insurrection. Less than a year after the end of the war, the Filipino people rebelled against the United States in 1899. As a result, the United States set up relocation camps, which are very similar to what Spain had done in Cuba, and this was an attempt to remove rebel supplies and recruits from the countryside. But as I stated earlier, anytime you lock up civilians in cages, bad things will happen. Because of this policy, Filipino civilians suffered greatly, and even more joined the rebel cause. Oftentimes, the Filipino rebels were outgunned, using just bolo knives and their own courage against Americans fighting with Springfield rifles and 38 caliber revolvers. And this actually leads to the invention of the 1911-45 pistol, because United States soldiers believed that the 38 caliber revolver did not have enough stopping power against these individuals. Thus, the idea for the Colt 1911 was born, and it would become the sidearm of U.S. forces for the bulk of the 20th century. The bravery and ferocity of the Filipino rebels led the Brigadier General Jake Smith to encourage scorched-earth tactics, like burning down farms and homes, as well as the execution of prisoners, their torture, and more Filipinos being put in cages. Later on, he was court-martialed for his offenses, becoming the first major court-martial of a U.S. general in American history, and he was found guilty. People later compared these atrocities to the Mai Lai Massacre during the Vietnam War, but that is a story for another day. I want to take this opportunity to illustrate how sometimes wars abroad can be used to inform American domestic policing strategies. See, the U.S. military pioneered three inventions and methods of fighting Filipino insurrectionists that were later adopted by the FBI a decade later and used extensively during the war on alcohol, anti-communist and anti-civil rights hysterias, and finally, the war on drugs. First was the use of fingerprinting, 
combined with photographs and serial numbers in order to create a numerical, physical, and visual record of any revolutionary or mobster, and this will go on to create a standardized system critical for successful criminal justice. Some historians have argued that Jim Crow, the Filipino insurrection, and prohibition combined to give birth to the modern prison industrial complex, which we still deal with to this day. After three years of nasty guerrilla warfare, President Roosevelt declared that the Filipinos were officially conquered on July 4, 1902, with a cost of 200,000 dead Filipinos and more than 5,000 American soldiers. The Philippines would remain a United States protectorate until after the Second World War, when independence was finally granted. Please advance to the next slide, entitled China. China was viewed as probably the single biggest prize for imperialists, since there were 400 million potential customers there. The problem for imperialists was that the Chinese government believed they had everything they needed, and also the Chinese were very ethnocentric, believing that foreigners were inferior to them. Even then, Europeans found ways to trade in China, both legally and illegally. For instance, in the 1800s, Great Britain fought two separate wars with China to force them to purchase opium, which led to widespread drug use in the country. Throughout the 1800s, France, Germany, England, Japan, and Russia had each laid claim to a, quote, sphere of influence in China, meaning that their goods would be exclusively sold in those regions. Obviously, the United States wanted to get involved, so the Secretary of State, John Hay, issued a series of open-door declarations, which insisted that U.S. businessmen be allowed to trade on equal terms within other countries' spheres of influence. Only the British formally accepted, but every other country rejected it. So Hay simply lied and said everyone accepted it. This oppression of China will directly lead to a massive rebellion inside the country. So please turn to the next slide entitled, The Boxer Rebellion. Obviously, no one had asked the common Chinese citizen what they thought of all of these spheres of influence. And most Chinese hated foreigners. And this was especially true of the Boxers, which was a secret nationalist organization that sought to rid China of intruders and foreign influence. Thus, in 1900, the Boxer Rebellion broke out, with boxers killing foreigners and missionaries and besieging foreign embassies in large cities. In fact, the boxers managed to surround the European section of Beijing, shouting, quote, death to the foreign devils, before they ultimately took control of the British embassy there. As a result of the violence, a multinational force was sent to crush the rebellion, made up of British, French, German, Russian, and Japanese soldiers, including 5,000 U.S. soldiers. However, McKinley had sent these troops without asking for a formal congressional declaration of war, which is theoretically a constitutional requirement, and this will set an unfortunate precedent of going to war without a formal declaration, 
which continues to this day. The foreign troops raped, looted, and murdered indiscriminately, and tens of thousands of Chinese citizens died, though ultimately the rebellion was put down in a couple of months. Many across the world were shocked by the violence, so please turn to the next slide, anti-imperialists. Not everyone was comfortable with oppressing people worldwide, and many anti-imperialists included Grover Cleveland, the former president, Andrew Carnegie, Jane Addams, Samuel Gompers, Mark Twain, and William Jennings Bryan. These Americans argued that the United States should not have colonies since the United States was born as a colony that had revolted against Great Britain. So wouldn't it be hypocritical for us to grasp other colonies? Others worried about incorporating non-whites, Filipinos and Hawaiians for instance, into the United States, which they thought would dilute the country racially. Again, illustrating that continued racism. Andrew Carnegie worried that imperialism would scatter us into a separate alien race. In the end, William Jennings Bryan probably said it best, that a republic, the American Republic, could not be an empire because colonialism violated the consent of the governed principle, which was at the very heart of the American government. Lastly, many labor leaders did not want imperialism and colonialism because they believed it would lead to an influx of cheap labor and thus hurt the American worker. With this difference of opinion, the American president would have to lead the way to decide American policy, but that is exactly when a change at the head of government would shake things up. So please turn to the next slide entitled, Assassination. In 1901, William McKinley was assassinated by the anarchist, Leon Kalgos. In this scarred Americans, since this was the third presidential assassination in just 36 years, including Abraham Lincoln, James Garfield, and William McKinley. With McKinley's death, Theodore Roosevelt was now president. Some of you may be asking, how did Roosevelt become president? How did he become vice president? Well, during McKinley's 1900 election, he decided to tap Theodore Roosevelt as his vice president, hoping that by bringing him into government, it would moderate his views and make him less of a potential challenge in the future. Many did not like Roosevelt. As one Ohio businessman and politician said, quote, Now look, that damned cowboy is president of the United States. However, Theodore Roosevelt was no cowboy. He was born into an extremely wealthy New York family but he had been a sickly child growing up, and so he always had a chip on his shoulder, wanting to prove to the world that he was strong. So Teddy Roosevelt embraced the outdoors. He was an avid hunter and boxer and went on roundups. During one hunting trip, he had supposedly spared a baby cub, and a toy maker had heard of this and thus began making stuffed bears called Teddy Bears. An interesting fact to note, is that while Roosevelt was an avid hunter, he was pretty much blind in one eye, meaning that he was a crack shot with only one eye to use. A less positive side of Roosevelt was his Darwinian thinking. He believed in the concept of white supremacy, as most Americans did in this era, 
and he believed the United States should dominate all other nations around it. This view led Roosevelt to adopt the, quote, speak softly and carry a big stick policy, meaning that he would be cordial and speak softly to great nations while wave American military power at weaker ones. So, how did this policy change affect the Western Hemisphere? Well, turn to the next slide entitled, Policy Change. Theodore Roosevelt radically changed U.S. policy in the Western Hemisphere. Before, it had been dominated by the Monroe Doctrine, which said that Americans would informally use its power to influence countries around it. But once Roosevelt was in office, some Latin American governments ended up defaulting on loans to European countries, and European countries wanted to intervene to recoup their investments. Germany even organized a blockade of Venezuela, and France and Italy threatened an invasion of the Dominican Republic. In response to these threats, Teddy put forward the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine in 1904, which said any disorder in Latin America would force the United States to, quote, exercise an international police power. So now, the United States would actively police the Western Hemisphere, not just speak for it. The United States would end up intervening in these countries so that Europe would not have any occasion to do so. And Roosevelt and his successors practiced what they preached. In 1905, U.S. troops were sent to the Dominican Republic to make sure their debt was paid. From 1909 to 1933, Nicaragua was occupied. And from 1915 to 1934, Haiti was occupied. While Americans trampled on the independence of other nations, they taught some locals how to play baseball. But even worse, they enforced American segregation and even practiced the forced sterilization of foreign women. So as you can see, there is a lot of reasons why many Latin and South American countries have a negative opinion of the United States. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Panama Canal. While the United States intervened in other countries, Roosevelt did not believe in outright conquest. But the exception to this rule was Panama. In Panama, a French company had been building a canal there, an idea that you could connect the Caribbean to the Pacific and thus save weeks of travel around the tip of South America. At the time, Panama was controlled by neighboring Colombia. And in 1901, U.S. warships had intervened in Panama in order to stop a popular uprising against the Colombians. When the French company building the canal went bankrupt, the United States tried to buy the strips of land that were cut through Panama. When negotiations broke down, Roosevelt gave his blessing to a new Panamanian revolt. And in 1903, U.S. ships this time supported the Panamanian rebels. With the Colombians effectively thrown out of the country, the United States concluded a treaty with the old French company that purported to represent the Panamanians. So you're talking to a European company rather than the Panamanian citizens about how they wanted to govern their country. The result was U.S. rule over the area until 1999. The American government continued work on the Panama Canal from 1904 to 1914, 
in one of the single greatest engineering miracles in history. Workers fought off disease, battled through the poor land, and finished a series of locks and dams that made up the canal. 30,000 workers worked 10-hour days, six days a week, for as little as 10 cents an hour. Dozens, if not hundreds, died. But the end result was an engineering miracle that allowed ships to pass from the Caribbean into the Pacific, saving valuable time in increasing trade. The Colombians were still very angry, so the United States gave Colombia a paltry $25 million for their lost territory, but many were still angry. And it would not be until 1999 that Panamanians finally regained control over the Panama Canal. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Dollar Diplomacy. American presidents after Roosevelt continued his policies, including the next president, William Howard Taft, who had been the former governor of the Philippines. Taft augmented Roosevelt's policy and practiced what critics called dollar diplomacy, which meant that more private U.S. investment should be given in Latin America and Asia in order to bring stability there, but also to exploit their resources. So theoretically, instead of troops or government, money would be sent there to improve local conditions and foster trade. So this encouraged many U.S. businessmen to buy up Latin American debt. But as a result, businessmen would later demand troops be sent in order to protect their investments, leading to widespread intervention. Thus, the United States continued to intervene in Latin America, especially during the Cold War. And as a consequence, it is very fashionable to dislike the United States there, probably for good reason. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.